Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. My guest today is Diego Sequeira. He's a columnist for Misión Verdad, an independent media outlet based in Venezuela. They do great work and are great friends of ours here at the Gray Zone. Nice to see you, Diego. Welcome back to Redlines. Thank you, Anya. Thank you for having me. Great seeing you. Well, there's a lot to discuss today regarding Venezuela. Let's start with the news announced this week that the government actually captured what it is calling a U.S. spy, an individual who was reportedly taking photos of Venezuelan oil refineries. What do we know about this arrest? Well, so far, what we know is that he was he wasn't alone. There were three nationals with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not mistaken. There are three of them. They were uh, from the military, obviously under under his payroll. He was moving towards from one, refi- one refinery to another one and like gathering info. Uh, they got weapons also. They, they got uh, they got several several assault rifles and they even have an RPG back in the in the back of the car, a small Chetty car, which are the Chinese cars that were that, that you could buy here that were brought by the Venezuelan state, by the way. So basically what the, what what the, the attorney general was talking to, uh, talking about the other day was that he was gathering all this information and they supposed and the main hypothesis it has to do with some kind of act of sabotage on one of these refineries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still we still have to wait for some more details about it. Of course there's a there's also the counterspin from the usual suspects about about whom about the procedures or whatever but that's i mean that's a classic situation you know media wise it happens when we, when this kind of things happen usually it's the same enforcement of plausible deniability that would you, the you know the CIA would use directly if there was a case so it's easily to uh, to make a context out of this especially on how things are right now at this moment in Venezuela, what's the, the political context about, especially what's going on on the opposition side of things, and um, and the urgency to destabilize some way or another, some quick way or another, uh, just like Mr. Abrams have been talking about all these months about. So it kind of gives the... the Gives the feeling that it's all framed in the in the in the pre-electoral context. And find a way to derail elections, derail all the dialogue initiatives, political initiatives that are going on right now, and and try to bring back violence and push out the politics out of the situation. You know. Yeah, and we'll get into what exactly is going on with the opposition at this moment. This weekend, the Venezuelan government says that the individual they arrested was a U.S. citizen named Matthew John Heath, that he was reportedly employed by a military security contractor called MVM. And if I'm not mistaken, Diego, this was all part of a, a 
foiled plot to bomb oil refineries, which even before this arrest took place, uh, Venezuelan officials were speaking about. They were saying that they'd caught wind of some sort of plan to sabotage oil production in the country. Is that correct? Yes, it made a lot of sense anyway, because uh, the oil industry and the oil business as a whole, it's like one of the main targets right now, you know, one of the main targets to disrupt. Uh, and especially because there's all this effort in recovering the whole the whole refinery system in order to, of course, to produce fuel properly and uh, and process other goods out of oil uh, and also try to sell it, of course. So this it's like trying to once more time target this this side of things, this area. And you know, there's a precedent also. If it happened, it's like, yeah, it, it it's, will be eight years from now. I'm talking about uh, 2012. Yes, September 2012, yes. There was this major explosion in the Amoy refinery, which is one of the, which, which is the biggest of the complex in Paraguaná, in the northern part of the Falcón state. And it was, it's, it's, it has always been a key refinery. Uh, and this was something, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't worse than it could, have been, it could have been, but it was a very massive and strong explosion. And of course they were wounded and, and, and I think there were a few dead too, but um, it could have been even worse. But that, and this was also in the context of pre-electoral, in, in a pre-electoral environment. In this case, this was a month before the presidential elections. The last one uh, run by El Comandante Chavez, so it made a lot of sense. And some things like there's no definitive version of what happened there yet, but it, they always suggested it was about sabotage. So it makes a lot of sense. And, it, and especially when you're in a moment that you're actually recovering specifically the insights and the refinery infrastructure, you know, it's given a decisive blow to block this, which by itself will do a greater harm to economy, trade, and so on, and also everything re re that regards to morale and, and everything else. So it makes a lot of sense, you know, like 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 some some kind of shock uh, drive to like like to alter the the, the whole scene. If it's a playbook, is what you're saying. How is this part of a? It seems a lot like. Yes. And how is this part of a broader initiative by the United States to destabilize Venezuela in the lead up to the December parliamentary elections? Well, it, you know, this is all about timing and this and so it, that's pretty, pretty explicit in what they're doing. And especially, you know, in Trump times, it form is not a, it's not a, precisely a, a main concern. So. And you know that this endeavor they've been into, especially, and I'm talking now specifically about the Trump years. I'm not talking about the Obama that enabled the Trump years in this case, uh, through, through all these efforts that each and every time they even believed it was going to succeed. So they planned and they thought about and thought this through in terms of immediate success. And of course, in some 
hubristical kind of Iraq spirit, uh, immediate back to return to some sort, some sort of normalcy uh, based on the Washington consensus or something. So, and, and it's also and it's also pretty explicit the way they have been also operating ever since the Guaido misadventure and the whole, you know, that whole cycle. Now we have like the after party of this <laughs> about, and, and that's that's where, yeah, I know we're gonna get there soon enough, but but that's the, that's actually <coughs> the spirit of all this opposition U.S. surrogates uh, slash operatives that um kind of sum up what's left of what they're able to do because they can't, they're not able now to do anything politically uh, without, I don't know, without getting hurt. And I'm not talking about the whole opposition. I'm talking about a section. So this is part of, of all the movement. And I think that they need, they're trying to do something or several things at the same time to actually try to Take the, you know, to rail all the situation, to make it, to, to, to toe the line again, once again before the elections, and to make some sort of, um, there's a lot of talking about uh, October surprises, and I think everyone is trying to do something about that, by, not, not, not because of Trump, but because of their own interest. I'm thinking about Pompeo or Pence or whatever. So it's, it all relates to that too. And this is also a matter of consensus between both parties, you know? So it's also... So that also shows how how strong are the interests on it, and of course, in this, and if this, if this is if this is the case, the corporate interest behind these. So it all it all kind of I mean it's it's even much more harder to explain that it doesn't add up to this and, and to the and to affect the whole uh, pre-electoral and electoral environment, and of course not to have any elections at all. I I should note that. This isn't far-fetched. U.S. government-tied organizations such as Canvas, as well as the Venezuelan opposition itself, have openly mauled plans to target Venezuelan infrastructure and stated very clearly that that is a way to promote destabilization and draw support away from the government. Why are these upcoming elections so important, Diego? How could they impact specifically the political position of opposition figure Juan Guaido? Yes, that's that's very important. And, and you know, trying to link up the the, the, the recent uh, answer with the, with the recent comment with this question about you know something, all this canvas tactics and all that, they don't have the strength to do it right now. Because, uh, well, because ever since 2017, they lost, they lost that chance, you know, and, and, and it got even worse back in uh, last year when, all the, when they burned up all the, those conspiracy sources they could have had for the third, uh, April the 13th school. Uh, so, and this brings up naturally to this logical conclusion about the parliamentary elections and, and, it's, imp and it, it, it's importance. And it... Basically, it's an act of, first, there's the formal aspects of it, such as uh, it's an act of sovereignty. It's, an, it's our domestic political schedule. I mean, it is statewide in a sense, as in, as in ample, not, 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 not from, from a specific group or party. And also because we come from a gridlocked situation between branches of government, as you know, Anya, 
we don't have just three branches of, of, of power. We don't have an executive, not only an executive, judicial and legislative one. We also have the moral uh, power, and which we has we has everything to do with uh, accountability and, and justice. And you also have the, the the electoral power. So there are five of them. So you have one power against four, one branch against four in government. And this situation has gone far too far because this is where the whole Guaido when you say when you say one branch against four of them, you're talking about the legislative branch, which has been declared out of order yeah. in contempt from contempt, yes. by the Supreme Court since the last parliamentary election. That is due to questions about. I, I believe it's what three races, whether or not they were legitimate in the in the yeah. National Assembly, and a refusal on the part of the opposition to investigate those claims of fraud in their in their elections. It should, not, it only, should... not only investigate it, but also run rerun the elections in that state because that happened in the Amazonas state, and, and they, did, they also refused to do that. Of course, something people might not know is that. A Chavista candidate was also accused uh, of fraud in that initial claim. Uh, well, the not exactly. You know, the, the, the thing about the, the Chavista there is that he also didn't got his seat because of the controversy in the, that state. So, so. But they, that individual, acknowledged the results of this this declaration, correct? But yeah, the, of course, the, absolutely. The, the, the three right. opposition figures have stonewalled any response to those to those claims and so that's why the national assembly is is in contempt at yes. this moment exactly and that's that's a situation that that, that was i mean in, in the whole dialogue framework this was a very important uh, concession to be made in order to go back to nor to to institutional constitutional normalcy and not using this branch of state as a platform, you know, for destabilization in many forms, because it has been that way ever since it started. I mean, they they won the elections. We can say, quote unquote, fair and square in the sense that, they, I mean, that they got the votes. I mean, what what conditions were before the vote is something else. And also, of course, the mistakes that the, 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 the PSUV and, and the allies had. But um, this, they, had this, they had this massive political capital, and they threw it away. The first address of Henry Ramos Ayubo, who became the first president of, of the first speaker of parliament, talking about that they will solve the situation, the Maduro file, in six months. So they were calling overly for regime change, trying to build up this disruptive and reversible, uh, yeah, reversible laws, trying to, to dismantle the whole uh, legal body, I mean, in some critical aspects. And then came the whole Guarimba situation in 2017, you know, and then came electoral boycott against not acknowledging the, the, the el Presidente Nicolás Maduro, and afterwards, then we have what we got Guaidó, and let's and now let's see what happened with that, you know, what's the result, what happened with Guaidó, what's going on in the opposition in this case, and what is the opposition or some segments of the opposition thinking right now? What are they thinking about, and what are they discussing about, and from whom they're starting to get a lot of heat and a lot of pressure, you know? Yeah. 
We'll we'll get into the the question of the opposition and the, its fragmentation in a moment. But since I veered you off track for a moment, just to get back to the question of Guaido, his whole self-declared presidency is based in the fact that he served a term as the president of Venezuela's National Assembly, this legislative branch of the government. Even though that term constitutionally expired in January of this year, he still based this claim in the fact that he's at least in the National Assembly. But that could change, Diego, in December, could it not? Of course, yeah, that's a very important point of, to make here. That's absolutely true. It, it, it's, that's where the struggle is right now. And, and you know, it, it, it also relies a lot or it also depends a lot on what's going on outside uh, Venezuela. It has to do with the, with the foreign arena. It has to do with what the, especially what the U.S. and the EU do about it, you know? Of course, we're seeing clear signs from the, from the, from the U.S. side of things, from the State Department, from Pompeo and so on, threatening any opposition politician that uh, participates in the elections to be uh, sanctioned and so on. So there's a lot of pressure there. But you also have some initiatives going on that, um, that, are, that are part of, of, of the new landscape, I think. And you have, in this case, you have kind of in their own spineless, classic European way, the EU is kind of sponsoring also with the help of other countries, uh, the possibility of some actual leadership from the opposition, a more, more recognized one in the, in the case of Enrique Capiles, but even himself, it's still kind of trying to take steps or not, because he's not a brave, he's a cunning guy, but he's not a brave one. So we don't know, he's not gonna take any risk unless he has some sort of backup. So this backup, it's important too. And um, that's to say because there's a lot of segments of the opposition that could actually be the ones that seal Guaido's fate, you know? Because already de facto is that way. I mean, Guaido is the only thing that, that keeps on going is, is, this, is this scam, is a, is a larceny they're into with all the cases that we, we're going to talk to a, a bit further. Uh, and nothing else. Only some strange loyalty from some of them. But you also have like this major fractures inside that even got into court to actually solve them. Because even in their own parties, there are people that are very interested in participating directly in these elections and to not to finish losing absolutely everything because of the, of the outcome of this last uh, political attempt to regime change Venezuela via some social engineering crazy thing that went so bad. And it also... It, and it's, it would it, it would have been only a funny thing, a Mel Brooks South Park kind of thing, but it was, but it also did, and it also is doing a lot of harm. But it's something, it's, it, it, I mean, it, it has brought it has brought all this damage. But I think it must, it has to be, kind of an enlightening experience, political experience to some opposition activists, to some opposition supporters, and also to people who simply, I don't know got some more fake expectations out of these adventures and in a very naive way. And, and they're also in pain now because of this clear betrayal, you know, as using all this to pivot and to access the cash 
the capital, the assets, and not even for themselves, but for someone else from a, for a, from a higher, bigger echelon, you know, from a, from a higher instance of power, non-sovereign power, and they're basically stealing, you know? So all this sophistication just to steal stuff, it's amazing. So that also has taken a strong toll here because you can't go all your life without... And I, I mean, they, they always call about, they're always talking about unity and then all the successes they've got because they were, when they're unified. But um, when you do this all the time, it breaks at some point, you know? All these structures are so uh, exhausted well, that it, they need some kind of renewal, you know? And it's something that they, the whole country needs, not only them and not only us. Well, it seems to be breaking up a bit now. Can you can you paint a picture of the opposition at the moment? I understand there are divisions between the Guaido camp, which takes a boycott, burn it all down approach, and other figures who would actually like to participate in the December election. You mentioned Enrique Capriles. He recently said Guaido's strategy has failed. Exactly. He has been pretty candid about that. I mean, and like I say, I mean, he's not acting alone. Some people are very interested, at least, and to go as far as they can uh, into building up this candidate and build some sort of new consensus outside the Guaido hegemony. And when we say Guaido, we're not talking about actually Guaido. We know, we all know that. I mean, the Leopoldo Lopez Voluntad Popular Mafia in this case, and, you know, and. Nevertheless, they still work together and act together when there's, when, there's, when, there's, when there's a need. Still, the situation has changed. It, it, it's been, I mean, it's like more, I mean, the opposition politicians, a lot of them are being more frank and candid about what's actually going on or, or what they feel about the situation and what they think they have to do. And, they, and some of them have been approaching the government uh, in a in a good faith gesture, I think from both sides, and, and and because I think both sides agree on on the basics, as in how harmful things have been already with this all this stupidity, uh, and uh, how harmful. What, what kind of figures and what what exactly are they saying? You say they're they're speaking about sanctions. Yeah, exactly. First, we have like this group that belong to the main parties from Un Nuevo Tiempo, from Primero Justicia, from Voluntad Popular, which are part of the G4, the, or even Acción Democrática, which are the, the major parties, the leading parties in the opposition coalition, which, are, which also has a lot of minor junior parties, always getting mistreated, by the way. Este, so from this G4, part of it actually started to... to Make uh, to bail out of the Guaido conundrum and try to act by themselves. And we have the, ca the case of Brito and Parra. Este, Parra, especially, is now the head of the, of the National Assembly. And he comes from the same party as Enrique Capriles. But there's a split there because they acted against, in a way, of their own, of their own the leadership back in the day. This situation also happened in Acción Democrática and a lot of other parties, and they, and, and they even asked for judicial intervention. So there's, like, there's, there's, there's even that kind of split inside the party. And the, main, and the dividing line is electoral politics. It's 
participating one more time and without being too too open about it because they still they keep they, 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 I mean they 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 keep their, their the same position they say, they say the same thing they think they're the same things about the government they they don't agree with a lot of things that are going on but they do believe that we have a structure in, in which we have to rely to actually solve the situation which are politics and it's based on our constitution and so on Luis Pada, of course, being the individual who challenged Guaido's legitimacy as president of the National Assembly in January when his constitutional term had come to an end, a member of the opposition who actually stepped forward and said it's time to elect someone else and was was elected by a group in, in the National Assembly to replace Guaido. Guaido has yet to acknowledge those results challenges those results and not only declares himself president of the country now, but is still pretending to even be president of the National Assembly. Diego, earlier this week, Iran successfully delivered a reported 2 million barrels of condensate to Venezuela as part of its effort to aid oil production in the country. What has the impact of Iran's assistance? That's right. What is the impact of Iran's assistance to the oil sector been on the average Venezuelan? I think it has been significant. Maybe the problem is it's, it's nothing that has been able to get its own definitive rhythm because we well because all know we all know the reasons why that's gonna that's became a hard thing, but um. It has been the first, the first five, five ships that came and gave uh, fuel. It was, they, they prevented a, a, a much complicated situation, and it was meaningful. It was something ex, uh, explicit. People knew where that where, where that gas came from. So this tells you a lot of things on both sides of the situation, as in what means what this means. In, in foreign policy, and what this also means in domestic policy, because it delivers kind of the same message for the people and for the people supportive of a different way of doing things. Uh, but and it also sends a message to the people to that actually threaten you with some uh, drive of excessive force and power because of the sponsors you got. And it has been proven now that that's not the only game in town. You, you know what I mean? Uh, this is very important because it's like, in this context, in the maximum pressure year, from a maximum pressure uh, target, we, we, this is the message that has been sent. And it also says a lot about what people are thinking about from the left i mean about imperialism about priorities in this moment in life in our human life and about how all this represents this huge struggle for survival and the right for existence like I've been, like we all know so it is a game changer Maybe it didn't, it wasn't so, it was, yeah, of course, it, it was a direct game changer for a moment. It has been a direct game changer when it happens. Uh, 
But I think it's going to have even broader consequences from both ends, as in Venezuela, Iran, and the rest of the countries that are facing, especially the countries that are facing sanctions from one side, and of course, our allies. And on the other side, of course, we're going to see much more pressure than before, which also makes, it also delivers another message. That's the same message that we can find behind the whole white door thing. And we're finding now in all they're trying to do to boycott and stop the elections and to declare them uh, without happening yet as illegitimate as, as and so on. And it's something that's not even an exclusive thing about Venezuela, not even the fuel and cooking gas crisis that we, can, what we could be going through, uh, but also this pattern to relate to elections this way, both from the U.S. and also from the EU. We, so we can see that in Belarus, and we can see that on how they are already addressing Bashar al-Assad's uh, presidential elections next year, which probably is going to be an Assad win. So they're already starting to lay the groundwork for that. So this kind of brings everything on the table and shows the mechanics of things, you know, and especially if you have something, someone so strange and clumsy and also so, uh, so, so, I don't know the word for it. There's so many, but like Trump kind of accidentally breaking the whole Beltway Omerta, it's all very meaningful. And also, and, 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 and this is my personal take, but I mean, it's also kind of, you know, uplifting to know, to feel you, that you actually are working with some other countries at every level. I mean, not only state policy level, but also on social assistance with no strings attached. And this also goes with everyone that's also on the multipolar side of things. So we're talking about, of course, China and Russia too, but also the African nations, the whole non-aligned movement. And it also tells a different story when you see it about what's going on in the world and where does some countries and their people stand. It absolutely does. And I don't think people in the United States realize that this is really the future of of global relations. Exactly. Global relations. U.S. hegemony will not last forever, and a new world is is rising and it's showing itself, especially in this relationship between Iran and Venezuela. Iran actually breaking the blockade of Venezuela in the U.S.'s so-called backyard, as it as it likes to refer to Latin America. What exactly was the root of this fuel crisis Venezuela is currently facing? Well, it has a lot of elements to it, you know. What I can assure you that one of them, it's not a, a matter of crazy mismanagement or failed state uh, outcomes or developments in that di direction. That's what's not it. Like I told you before, this is a pattern that we also been seeing in other places of the world recently. I'm thinking about Syria in this case, you know, a year ago, I think it was, with all these long lines of people trying to get gas and so on. So it, it, it does have also, you have to, you know, to be frank about things. Of course, it does have a, rela a direct line with shortcomings. Uh, contradictions, mistakes, mismanagement, that's also part of the deal. Of course, that's part of it. It's true. 
but it's not the, it's not the the whole explanation to it. It's not that, that that's the that's only the spin to it, because behind all this, behind all the, what could be, let's call it uh, local malfunctions, just like any other place in the world, and we're even better at it right now, I think, because at least there's a, this concern to making things better. Uh, but um, you have also the whole sanctions operating you know first of all you have from 2000 from august the 24th 2017 it the trump president trump uh, signed an executive order that started the whole sanctions regime on pdvsa the, the national state oil company uh, the, which is like the like the heart and and the brain and almost everything of the venezuelan economy and wealth creation and so on uh, so that already made a, a next a, a, a more thorough impact on what was already going on financially and in other aspects and on trade and on and on banking and all of this is related to it and you also have the part the, the problem of maintenance you have the problem of buying spare parts and you also have used to have the problem of the kind of interface you used which was all related to U.S. technology. So, of course, the U.S. wasn't going to sell or, or wasn't going to sell fairly uh, any kind of spare parts that we, 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 we would have needed uh, to, uh, to, you know, to, to keep maintenance to, uh, to the refineries, for example. That also brought another, took another toll. And also you have the problems on salary and so on. So you also have, have had several kind of specific conflicts uh, on all the social aspects. All of this brings it, makes it, takes a toll to it. And you also have, of, of course, now the direct embargo on the oil sailing, on the oil sailing and the oil ships and the, on the whole oil transportation process. So bringing everything, all this to a halt brought the whole industry closer to collapse. And you also have, yes, uh, corruption or leakings or kind of a lot of things that were, that went that also happened, especially during the Rafael Ramirez tenure, that also made a lot of harm. So it's it's like a big, unhealthy mix of things that already been they're also being faced, and I think it's they're, they're taking steps to 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 deal with this, and then and it's something that's a process too, but all of this explains why it's so hard to get to get to this point. Sometimes it's still wins too, you know, because they, if we don't have them, we have to buy to, to some other partner and the, and the U.S. won't allow it to, that, to that transaction to be made. And that, so it, it's, it attacks everywhere. That's sanctions right there, you know. They talk about sanctions not being an act of war, but, but you know, you got, here's clear enough how it happens, how it breaks down, what's all about. That's another thing, because now... You can always, all the U.S. officials talking about Venezuela are more over than before about sanctions and their purpose and their, and their interests in politics. So that's, so you, you, you still have a lot to where, where to, you know, where to look and find explanations to this. Uh, the, but you have, we have to, yeah, we have to address and we have to attack the myth that it's only a, a thing of, 
you know, socialist failure and malfunction and so on. Another industry which has suffered as a direct result of U.S. sanction policy is the healthcare industry. How is Venezuela currently weathering the outbreak of coronavirus? Well, you can do several comparisons, you know, basic, the basic ones with the other, with our neighbors. I'm thinking, of course, of Colombia, of Brazil. I'm thinking about Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Argentina has, has done better. And I think Paraguay doesn't have such heavy figures. But the rest, and of course, Cuba and Nicaragua, what a surprise. But the rest of the countries actually have a very high rate of infections and contagions. And, and also, which is more important, a higher rate of deaths, you know? Uh, I Just today, I'm not sure what's the figure right now. Uh, but what I can tell you about the, how it has been managed, it's that it has been like everything Venezuelan. It's not only one thing going on, uh, but several. Same thing happened with the, with the, with the pandemics, and not, not because of Venezuela, but because what the foreign interest the foreign powers try to do against Venezuela pivoting and taking advantage of sanctions and so on to try to even deliver regime change in a COVID context which is actually incredibly sick anyway uh, and of course there were all this forecast about how how bad things are and how bad things are going to be and it started incredibly well and one of the things, one of the, one of the things that actually changed everything was the exodus, the counter exodus that happened from the other nations to Venezuela because of the danger they already faced with COVID and the economic depression and so on. I'm thinking about all the people that returned from Colombia, from uh, Ecuador, walking back to Venezuela from Brazil. Lots of these cases uh, already, uh, you know, already with COVID. And so a lot of what, have, what could have been planned for the people that was already in Venezuela actually changed and had to attend all these people that was coming in, kind of changing everything. But they were trying to overwhelm the whole healthcare system in order to make things collapse here. And that hasn't happened, not even yet. This is also very, very important, you know, because uh, there's, there was even a CSIS event a couple of days ago about uh, Venezuela, COVID and famine. And this hasn't been the truth. I mean, of course, numbers did alter a lot when people started arriving. And of course, also, uh, the, the, you know, the, the domestic consequences of, of, for example, in Caracas, it's a very good example of people, uh, people getting infected because Caracas is like the epicenter of, of, of contagion right now. And it also has to do because we, Carac we Caracanos could be very indisciplined, but it's nothing, it, it has nothing to do with mismanagement, you know, because you can see that in the, in the most shrewd of terms, the number of people that have died, and I think we haven't reached the thousand yet. And this is kind of a cynical 
comment because if we're talking about, I mean, dead people accounts for Christ's sake, but see, check out what's going on in Colombia or what's going on in these other countries and how I have the answer to this. And this also, this explains a lot how, how the model of management of government and policy actually matters a lot. Let's see, there's no, there's no uh, coincidence, Anya, that the two countries that actually despise human life the most, because are the, the countries that actually embrace slavery uh, the most deepest, are the ones that actually have the highest death tolls in the whole hemisphere. And those two countries are actually Brazil for one, and the other one is the United States. And you can actually make a strong, a stark contrast between this and the approach that Venezuela or Nicaragua or Cuba has had. You mentioned the return of Venezuelan citizens who went abroad seeking a better life, but then returned because they they found that in places such as Brazil and Colombia, life was not exactly what they expected. Venezuela has an official program, Balta la Patria, which allows for the return of these people. They actually bring them home on planes provided by the uh, by provided by the Venezuelan government and yet much of the recent migration has come unofficially i know madeline garcia at telesur has documented cases of individuals crossing the border unofficially which means that it's impossible to track them during this really dangerous time for for travel between countries when there are especially certain countries in the region that were experiencing far worse breakouts than than Venezuela. It, it certainly complicated the the situation and it, it was uh, an unfortunate development, but you certainly never saw images in Venezuela of bodies left in the street the way you did, for example, in Ecuador where where the the response from the government was just completely lacking finally diego let's transition to news out of miami where media personality patricia poleo recently broadcast a report which she billed as demonstrating that functionaries representing juan guaido in the united states committed federal crimes including extortion what did she reveal exactly well, you know, I've been seeing, she's, she started scooping recently, this week, I mean, the whole story. And um, it's, from our point of view, I think it's like a piracy novel inside another piracy novel. And the whole thing, it's about how to steal Venezuela's sovereign assets using uh, the same quote-unquote sovereign procedure or some or some not even two sovereign procedures to to they, they call it retaking these assets but in this case but you know what that means about it they're just talking about stealing in this case a group made lobby that was it was interesting in recapped and retaking the, the whole the assets of the Venezuelan government through a the, company called Caribbean recovery assets CRA exactly exactly yeah, they're all related to Petro Caribe, which is one of the. It's still even now. It's one of the of the flagship uh, foreign policy uh, experience from Venezuela, 
and for El and for the Caribbean too. The Caribbean also it's a, it has been a stalwart defender of Venezuela, of course with some nuances in recent years with with Haiti and so on. But but all over you know it has been actually on the side of Venezuela, and there's a lot of and there has been a lot of investment going on in all these countries, and that's what they're trying to get. So because this, also there's a major U.S. interest. Also, there's a major U.S. interest in the Caribbean basin. This company, CRA, essentially approached the Guaido coup regime, Guaido officials in the United States, with a proposal to help them recover Venezuelan government assets in Petro Caribe in those in those states. Yes. Which were uh, which were several. Uh, it's a lot of uh, projects and companies and so on, and they want to try to pick them all up. The thing about this is that, that the procedure that came after that, uh, because this is this company, it's more like a firm, you know. One of the, and it's actually, if you see it, if you see, if you look close to it, it's like the like this shark, sharkiest kind of thing, kind of uh, vulture. Uh, fun, you know. Absolutely. It's 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 more that kind of people. It's not, of course, it's, it's not at all well-intended people. These are people connected with the U.S. These are firms of Venezuelans that work inside the U.S. environment. So uh, it's part of the same scheme. Then the funny thing is that well, they they did this uh, this sort of IPO they did, you know, where they they presented the project and so on, and and it competed with other firms and. Finally, they had like this uh, this permit to be the one that would work on this on several aspects, and at the end would represent the Venezuelan state, the Guaido state in this case, uh, the, the 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 ghostly, inexistent Guaido state in this case, uh, in the process, in the legal process of recovering these assets. But from that moment on, classic greedy. Shitty uh, Venezuelan gatekeeping corruption schemes started to loom, and everything, everyone in the Guaido government had something to do, some interest to do with this operation. And so, for one side, uh, Vecchio sends his own assistant that by, that also represents Guaido, and on the other side, side uh, Jose este Hernandez. The, the 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 fake uh, attorney general, the procurador of the of the uh, Guaido fake government, also uh, gives some sort of quid pro quo, and they all ask in, all asking a huge, an enormous amount of money of all the what they were going to receive from this in order to let them get the contracts. So, but this is all going on in the United States. So it's they are. Uh, they, they seem to be, at least, and that's what the people of this of this strange lobby we're talking about say about it's uh, it's it's uh, blackmail, it's corruption, it's it's bribery, you know, and those are all federal uh, crimes. Essentially, we have reached that point. Essentially. There is no hard evidence of uh, or fingerprints left on the claim of extortion itself. What Poleo has are documents showing that CRA was in contact with Guaido officials, their testimony about several meetings they had over 
a year-long period with members of the Guaido administration. But the Guaido figures were very, very careful in the way they went about this. They were supposed to write up a contract. Jose Ignacio Hernandez says he doesn't have time. And so Vecchio ends up sending these unofficial representatives of the government who aren't officially on the government payroll, government payroll. And these individuals meet with, with CRA in Miami, and one of them ultimately demands a $50,000 payment from CRA and says, if you don't make this payment within five minutes, the deal is through. And after CRA refuses to pay this individual, the Guaido administration pretends as though there was no agreement, that there was no plan for them to work together. Jose Ignacio Hernandez then officially tells them to cease all communications. So they essentially sent proxies, if we're to believe this CRA story, to demand the extortion. Uh, and they were very careful in, in how they handled the case. But unfortunately, as you say, this other side, the company, the CRA side, they're they're not great people either. They definitely didn't have their, their best interests at heart. They were, they're shady individuals. So it, it, at the end of the day, it just seems like criminals upset with criminals. But uh, what it did remind me yeah, of... And you, can, and, you, and you must include the poleo there also, you know? It's all, it's, all, it's all in the same package. It's all in the same moral package. Right, but it's significant that this is appearing in Venezuelan opposition media, and it reminded me of the last scoop Poleo had, which was her interview with Jordan Goudreau, the former U.S. Green Beret, who says he was in a contract with the Guaido administration to essentially kidnap or kill President Maduro. But it also... it. it the, the, the common theme here with that story and with this new piece is that the way that the Guaido officials in the United States are managing their affairs, regardless of the fact they were involved with a kidnapping or murder attempt or that they were participating in this extortion, is that they're not running a real official government. It's, there, there's always questions of who exactly is is qualified or authorized to speak on behalf of Guaido, who are the real government officials. There's no clear record of meetings and conversations that there would be if they were a real government. And that's what allows for these types of scandals to arise and for Guaido and Vecchio and company to say, well, we weren't technically involved. But it's because they're not running a real government. They're just sending proxies, lawyers here, uh, friends and family over there to go and negotiate what are supposed to be government contracts. Well, and you, and you know, if, if you you just you know that was spot on. You know that was that's absolutely correct to relate how the, the reactions in both cases. You know, in the Goodrow case, and also in this in this also this scandal that that Patricia Poleo is allegedly breaking, este, because it's like the same way to you know, to find, to find a way to bail out of it, if necessary, and to own it if it succeeds. You know, it's, it's kind of the same scheme going on, just, of course, the same, or the same defense mechanism there. You know, it kind of like their, 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 their own SOP about how to 
how to deal with these situations if they go wrong, like in both cases, and how to keep all those the tracks that you were talking about uh, sort of untraceable here. But um, but you know, it, it, I, I don't know if that adds up. I know someone else. It must be someone else. I mean, there in the U.S., it actually could be looking. Uh, someone else with a different opinion. Who knows? Uh, the thing is that uh, that yes, it, it proves what's all about, and we have to also think for a moment what Patricia Poleo could here. Patricia Poleo has also this fuck you journalism style, uh, very aggressive, and she has been onto this campaign against the government, the Guaido shadow government, for a while because of all this corruption scandals. But it's kind of puzzling from to actually trying to finish deciphering where she's actually talking from, you know? Because she's not on, she's not so, I don't see her too obviously related to a lot of opposition groups, but nevertheless, she's a very opposition, very extreme, and she comes from a family, a dark dynasty of journalists here, you know? So, but there's something still missing here, and it's from that side of Patricia Poleo that actually that brings a, another question mark to all this, loose ends that are also quite visible here, you know? Yeah, I just think it's it's only a matter of time before more individuals, such as the people who represent CRA, people who are like Goudreau, step forward and begin to complain about their experiences with, with Guaido shadow officials in the United States because... Exactly. Because they, they've established a pattern here of running very shady, untraceable operations that end up burning their business partners. And in the eyes of the United States, at least, those individuals, those partners are credible and you'd think should lead to some kind of investigation. That's certainly what Poleo is calling for in her video reports breaking down this 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 latest scandal she's she's calling on u.s officials to investigate uh, the guaido administration but i'm not so hopeful that will happen but i'm still i'm still looking forward to future scoops in the future yeah and and it clearly clearly a power struggle going on there yeah, absolutely. Again, it's a question of who exactly she represents, which is which is unclear, but at least at least good for her turning up turning up these uh, this dirt on, on Guaido and family. Diego Sequeira of Mission Verdad, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anya. As always, it's always been a pleasure.